This episode is supported by Zencaster. It's an all-in-one podcast production suite, and it gives you studio-quality audio and video from home without needing all of the technical know-how. I switched to Zencaster for recording my interviews a few months ago, and I have been so impressed. It records each person locally, so even if the internet wobbles, you won't miss a beat. Learn more and save 30% on your first three months at Zencaster.com slash pricing and enter the code GIRLBONERRADIO. You can start with a free trial of the professional version and then either keep going or switch to their free option moving forward for great interview quality without all the extras. Again, that's Zencaster.com slash pricing with the code GIRLBONERRADIO. What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. People in the recovery community talk about windows and waves. They talk about that, like, it's not a linear healing, this thing. And so not like when you, like, cut your hand and then you just notice that scabs, eventually it falls off. And it's not like that. You have, like, some days that are better and then days are worse. That was not my experience. I was just awful the whole way until this one day where I had this one good hour. It was, like, heaven sent because I really needed that hour to feel like, okay, for whatever reason, that happened. And so I know that it could happen again. That was Renee Schulz Jacobson. Renee and I met years ago. We were both writers in the blogging world. I knew that she had been a teacher, that she had a son. She seemed kind and smart and upbeat, like someone I would have liked to grab coffee with. Then, seemingly out of the blue in 2013, her routine blog posts stopped appearing. She published a post sharing why. She had been recovering from a dependency on a drug she had been prescribed. She had been using it as directed. The problem was, those directions were quite wrong. Renee is in a far healthier place now, and she recently published a powerful memoir called Psychiatrized, Waking Up After a Decade of Bad Medicine. It's a harrowing tale of her journey through dependency, injury, and trauma, as well as a beautiful story of healing, hope, and resiliency. Before we dive in, I want to make it clear that I strongly believe in the helpful importance of psychiatric medications when they are prescribed properly. That was not the case for Renee, and as you will hear her caution as well, it's important not to make any changes to your medications without approval and guidance from a qualified professional. Secondly, this episode contains material that may be sensitive for some, including details about a traumatic childbirth, sexual assault, 
and suicidal ideation. As always, please take care of yourself first. And if you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the hotline down in the show notes. Today, Renee describes herself as an artist, author, advocate, and fierce truth teller. As a kid, she was more of a quote unquote good Jewish girl in many ways. At the same time, she learned more than many kids do about sexuality. Even though I grew up in a pretty conservative, you know, conservadox Jewish family. Um, my mom was very open about sexuality. Very young, she taught me about the the specifics of the you know way babies are born, the facts and things. Her mom had quite a collection of literature, books of all kinds, and Renee was a voracious reader. I remember stumbling onto this book, The Happy Hooker, and some other very graphic books, and asking her about them. And instead of like shaming me or shouting at me and saying, those aren't for you. She sat down with me and told me all about like the other side of sexual pleasure that like men and women do this to each other. And, and, and sometimes men and men do this and sometimes women and women. And she was very open. She told me maybe a little bit too much about herself with my father and no one necessarily wants to hear that. But point being, she was quite open about it. Even if her mother hadn't told her all of that, Renee would have had some idea. God, I hate to even like say this because it might embarrass her, but we grew up in a pretty small house and my parents are very deeply in love with each other. And you could, shall we just say, hear that at various times of the day or or night. I just kind of grew up with that, like knowing that was normal and that was like their normal expression. And my brother and I would kind of go downstairs to play when that was happening or we would, you know, go do something else. The caveat is that even though she said that this was acceptable with other people, it was always, always very clear that for me, it should always be in the confines of a a sexually monogamous, preferably marriage relationship. The positive messaging Renee received helped her grow up without shame around her sexuality, at least early on. When I was in middle school, I guess I would say I had a bunch of friends and we just hung out and we would go in the basement and we would play duck, duck, smooch. And then we'd play seven minutes in the closet. You know, there was a lot of physical touch and there was no stigma or shame around any of this. We could kiss each other and touch each other. And it was just very innocent. It felt like very innocent to me. I loved hearing how normalized and joyful that was for her which also made something else she experienced during high school all the more heart-wrenching. I was a pretty serious gymnast. I went several times a week to this training center for, for years, actually. It was a very confusing time. I went on the day that the gym was being closed. So I kind of think it was a Tuesday afternoon, and I had my leotard and everything, and, and the door was locked. I had to sort of bang on the door there were these people who actually were carrying out the lockers, like my locker, which had my my leotard and my dance shoes and like some other things in there. It was just being carried out. 
Renee didn't know what was going on, but it was clear that the gym was being closed for good. Shortly thereafter, I found out about what was happening, that the coach had been accused of molesting several of his gymnasts. And I remember thinking, well, first of all, what is that? Like, what does that mean, the word molest or molestation? I've always been a bookish girl, you know, so I looked it up and I read it and went, whoa, I trusted this person. This was an adult that I trusted. He had never acted out with me. But then it created like this strange place in my head where it was like, maybe I wasn't good enough for him to have wanted to, like, I wasn't good enough. The, the girls that he selected were his favorites or the better gymnasts or whatever. So it was this very strange seed planted that somehow like the girls who were, I mean, now I see it as the girls who were victimized, right? Like the girls who were selected or groomed to be in this situation, they were the really, they were the best. And I was kind of like, oh man, I'm like, I'm not that good. So it was a weird thing. I was relieved that this didn't happen to me, but also felt simultaneously rejected. It's a very strange dynamic. Completely. And it really mirrors the ways that girls, especially our sexuality when we're growing up is, it's something that we give to people, that people do to us, that we're so objectified. And so that you absorb that message in such like a, a violent way. Totally. And it, it carried into my high school life, like academically in a weird way, because I was not necessarily the best student when it came to math. And there were a couple of teachers, male teachers that I would have to stay over after to get extra help or assistance. And they were creepy, you know? And so I felt like I needed this help to be able to get better, like the way I would have with a coach, right? Like I was reliant on these people for their attention. They were a little creepy, but I had to sort of accept this idea. And like I said, like it got a little convoluted in my mind, but somehow it felt like if someone was touching me, then that I was cared for in a certain way. It was very strange, but this did happen. Like, you know, there was a particular math teacher who would drop his pencil and he would kind of like playfully like look up my skirt or brush against my leg. And like, that's not okay. But I felt, I felt chosen because of that. Like I know, I don't think I would have ever even had that paradigm if this earlier stuff happened. I think I would have been like furious actually. But because this earlier thing happened, I definitely felt kind of like, oh, you know, now I'm being, now I'm being picked. As I was reading Renee's book, I was struck by these two almost different personas that I think so many of us who were reared as girls experience. There's the good girl she tries to be, which is all wrapped up in these super confusing messages. And there's the person that she would have been without all of that. I don't think that person ever goes away. They just get quieter or pushed down too often. At one point in the book, she wrote, as I grow older, I not only feel pressured to be good, but I also feel increased pressure to be socially successful, academically excellent, smart, fit, and pretty too. Once Renee met her former husband, Derek, in 1990, she found herself striving again to be that good girl, to be a good wife. She and Derek had things in common, and there were major differences between them. 
Renee wrote that she had always had a robust libido, for example. Sex is something that she's into. And Derek, he seemed to have very different values and needs. When they met, Renee was dating someone who played drums in a band. Derek was in that band. We were just friends, and he was the guitar player, and he was very good. And it really started as a friendship. And then it deepened as a friendship. But once things with the drummer fell apart and disintegrated and I moved into my own place and I kind of, you know, was expanding into this apartment and this new single life again, he kind of stepped back in and said, hey, you know, would you like to, you know, go out sometime? And I had never thought about him romantically before. He just felt comfortable. Like Renee, Derek is Jewish. And he, too, was a student at the time in medical school. And he was also creative, you know, a musician. And so we had like a good thing. And he was also very, he was just very kind. Like we got each other. We knew some people in common, all that stuff. So it felt very comfortable. But looking back at it now, August, I can see how it was a friendship that we hit this precipice where it was like, We went out on a date and it was a good date, you know, and then he came back to my place and we kissed and I, I didn't, I didn't like the kiss. And I mean, this is very painful. I didn't even put this in the book. You didn't feel chemistry. But I liked him so much. I just liked him so much. And I, because I didn't have that experience behind me, I was young. I just thought, well, Maybe we can build on this, right? Maybe we can build on this. And, you know, we tried. For me, it was very confusing. I felt a lot of love, and my love language is definitely physical touch. So I tried. I would try to reach out. I would try to be affectionate. But it was not received well or reciprocated. At first, she thought maybe it's because he's a doctor. He had gone from his residency into his internship, and it was a really stressful time. And so he would say, you know, I'm exhausted, you know, give me those kinds of things. And at first I accepted them, but it was so early on in our marriage, I was like, this seems strange. I've been in other relationships where, you know, we would at least make out for hours or you know, explore each other for hours, and we just didn't have it. That was the case from early on, even before they were married. When Renee's early attempts at building that spark of passion and affection didn't pan out, she sought answers elsewhere. She didn't know about therapy then, she said. But given her religious background, she went to see a rabbi. Just prior to our wedding, I explained that we're having some, what I felt were some pretty significant intimacy issues. And the rabbi said, "Eh, you know, you're a teacher. Yeah. You know, and I said, yeah, I'm a teacher. And he said, you're, you're a pretty girl, you know, just be patient with him. You'll be able to pull him out of his shell. And I remember feeling so like, not only was I like indicted as a bad teacher now. Like if I couldn't pull him out of his shell, not only am I like, I'm not a good teacher now. And also on top of that, like I'm not sexy enough or I'm not doing something right, right? Like if I can't do it, I'm not doing something right. 
it made a huge impact on me. Huge. Just before her wedding, the summer of 1995, Renee confided in her mother, too. The woman who was so open about sexuality while Renee was growing up. I did say to her, I'm concerned because we just don't seem to have the kind of like intimate connection that I would like. For whatever reason, that didn't end up helping either. Maybe I wasn't expressing myself as clearly as I needed to, or maybe she just didn't want to hear it because she really loved him and wanted us to be married and all this stuff. But whatever it was, she asked me a set of questions that really didn't answer the question. Do you think he's fun? Well, yes, of course I think he's fun. Does he make you laugh? Absolutely, he makes me laugh. And then she said, so, you know, what are you worried about? The rest will come, right? The rest will come in time. And it seemed to be the message that everyone told me is that, you know, this will develop. This will develop naturally. And it just didn't. It just didn't. A few years into their marriage, Renee learned that she was pregnant. Both she and Derek had really wanted to become parents. And she called her son's birth the wonderful outcome of their union. His birth was also traumatic. And her pregnancy leading up to it, very difficult. I had this extreme nausea the entire way. I actually lost weight during the pregnancy, which is always alarming. You know, that's not what's supposed to be happening. You're supposed to be gaining weight. I was quite sick for a while. I was actually teaching early on, and I had to take a leave of absence from school. She was on bed rest and spending a lot of time alone. My husband went to work, and it wasn't like I had visitors. People were working, you know, so I was very lonely. And then one day I actually got up and sort of went to the bathroom and I went to the bathroom and then it just sounded like I was still going to the bathroom, but I wasn't anymore. And I looked down and I was just gushing blood, just gushing and gushing. Of course, your first thought is, oh my gosh, I'm losing this baby. It's too early. I'm losing this baby. I screamed. My husband came. He put me into his car and we rushed off to the hospital. And so, you know, that's not a great way to start a birth experience. You hope that it's going to be calm. And, you know, I had made a birth plan. Like I had read about all that stuff. And so I had like this plan that I'd have this water birth and like it'd be really calm. <laughs> and it just, it just didn't pan out. You know, it just didn't come to pass that way. It was, it was quite stressful. Renee's delivery went on for hours and hours. And because she'd been on bed rest, she had missed training classes like Lamaze. The nurses were talking her through it all, but it was still deeply stressful. On top of that, after about three hours of pushing, she was told that was too much. So it went on too long. And finally, the doctor said, we need to cut. We're going to need to take him surgically. And I said, no, no, just let me do it one more time. Just let me do it one more time. And I summoned all my powers 
And she said, well, wait a second, I'm going to assist you on this. And she got a vacuum extraction thing going and I just pushed as hard as I possibly could. And there was this suction sound and I felt ripping and it was intense, but he was delivered. He was there and he was out and someone picked him up and put him on the, you know, to off to the side. And then immediately though, he was whisked away because he was not responding. And so what I didn't know at that moment, but he was being brought to the NICU for his own intensive care. He wasn't breathing, and he was blue. Renee didn't see any of that, though, because she was having a crisis of her own. I remember lying there, and I'm looking at the OBGYN, and they're not looking at me. They're looking down at my lady bits. And I saw this pink basin next to the bed, and it was like filling up with blood. Like it was just, there was tons of blood and there were like tons of rags that she just kept sticking on this metal tray. My last conscious thought was, wow, that's a lot of blood. I wonder whose blood that is. And then I just was gone. She's not sure if she passed out from the pain or from anesthesia or both. What she does recall is a near-death experience she endured in that hospital room. So after I'm put out and maybe, you know, obviously put under anesthesia where they're like deciding what to do with me and bleeding out, losing all this blood, I had this out-of-body experience where I was floating over myself and I kind of hovered up over my body and I kind of felt this conveyor belt kind of sensation where I was being pulled into a tunnel. And people always talk about NDEs. You know, you've heard it, right? They like talk about the white light and how wonderful it is. And like they see all their ancestors and they feel this sense of love. That is not how it played out for me. I saw dark spirits swirling around me. I saw something that you don't want to see, which the only way I've ever been able to make sense of this is like I was not going to the heaven place. That was not what was happening. I had a really bad experience and I saw a little edge of hell. It was very, very scary. There was like a chipper sensation, like a chipper, like cutting me at the legs, you know, and it was kind of going up, 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 up. And the next thing I knew, I I sort of felt like I was reaching out to grab onto the sides of this like invisible chipper or whatever that I felt like I was being pulled into in this conveyor belt. I was filled with two things at the same time. One, this absolute knowing that I was going to die and I was never going to get to be a mother, which I had wanted to be so much. And the second thing was that something had come into my body that like a spirit had come into my body that I had seen this other side and something had actually like joined my body (laughs) and I came out not alone. Like I brought somebody back with me, an entity. It's very hard to explain, but that was the feeling, was that something had joined me. When Renee came out of that, she was told that her son was doing fine. They wheeled him in from the NICU in a little bassinet, and she was able, miraculously, she said, to nurse him. And they got me up walking, and I didn't have, like, dizziness, like, all the things they said I wasn't going to be able to do, I was able to do. And that was all positive. 
but I wanted to talk about this crazy experience that I had had. I wanted to talk to people about like, hey, I had this bad experience. I'm super scared right now. And obviously, you know, this is my unique story, but like I've heard from so many women in their birth stories that that's what they're told, that like they've had a difficult experience and they're told, oh, but focus on the babies here. That's the miracle or she's here or they're here. And it's totally denies the woman's experience. It's great that the baby's here, but we have feelings too that need to be heard and seen and healed, frankly. There was one of your guests who said this at one point. I can't remember which one, but like if women walked around, I'm badly paraphrasing her. If women walked around with the wound associated with childbirth outside of their body, people on the street would be like, whoa, what happened to you? Nobody likes the word recovery. Well, why should I recover? Women give birth all the time. I'm badass. Like, I'm just going to get back to it. But the fact of the matter is, if if we had the wound site externally that we have internally from where the placenta leaves the uterus, no one would ever think of going outside. You know, it's like a dinner plate size wound site where the placenta detaches from the uterus. Wow. They, you know, you lose a ton of blood. Your progesterone drops 300%. There's so many physiological processes. There's 16 suspensory ligaments that hold up the uterus that become kind of like loose taffy and they need time to gel back up. But you can't see any of that. So it's all mysterious and it's all internal. And we don't think about our organs until they're bothering us because it's not an embodied culture and we, we're not really used to using our body as our compass and our intuitive radar, we just think, well, you look pretty good. And even if you don't, whatever, let's go to Target. That was Kimberly Ann Johnson, a sexological body worker, birth doula, and author of the postpartum guide, The Fourth Trimester. We spoke in July 2018. That has been such a metaphor and for my whole entire last eight years about things that are invisible that need so much more attention and nuance. Another common challenge is sleep, or more specifically, how to get enough of it. Most parents struggle with rest, especially when they have a newborn at home. They're woken up at all hours of the night and they have to often try to squeeze sleep in when the baby's napping, and that's only if their schedules allow. Renee's sleep challenges were so much more than that. She described them as next-level insomnia. I sort of came home from the hospital a mess. I lost 75% of my blood during the delivery. Lots of people ask me, why didn't you transfuse? Well, Derek was really adamant that around this time, you know, there was a lot of worry around HIV and hep C. And he was like, look, you don't have to go back to work. Why don't you just slowly grow your blood back instead of adding an additional risk? We'll just do it that way. We'll get a personal care aid for you and you can just slowly grow it back. And it seemed at the time like it was the right thing. And, and maybe it was, right? You know, like there was a physical solution that we were trying to do, but I could not sleep. There were multiple layers to the insomnia, she said. There's the usual aspect of parenting a baby when you're woken up frequently or anticipating your baby waking up. She was also nursing, so her breasts would get firm. 
and she was dealing with the trauma of her difficult delivery and all that entailed. Sleep often suffers after a traumatic event. For Renee, there was another layer too, one she could not have anticipated. I really had this other experience where I would lie down and I just heard voices telling me to do things, not scary things, not like to hurt myself or anything, but just like I could hear voices. Like if someone was talking in another room, just sounded like muttering. And I would say to my husband, I'd wake him up and I'd be like, do you hear that? She compared the experience to Whoopi Goldberg's character in the movie Ghost. She's like suddenly really hearing spirit. Truthfully, that was what was happening, but I didn't have any way to know what that was. And so I was really, not only was I having this very strange experience of like hearing other voices, but I was also being told to be quiet. Don't tell people that. Like, don't talk about that. Let's just be happy and just keep nursing your baby. There is such a pattern in Renee's experience where she gains some kind of awareness or speaks up about a challenge, and then she gets pushed back down. Then she speaks up again, and she gets pushed down. And for a long time, even well-intentioned people and seemingly smart efforts ended up not being terribly helpful. Because my husband was a doctor, he was just like, girl, you got to get to a doctor because there's something wrong. She went to see her primary care doctor, who prescribed various antidepressants. We tried Prozac. We tried Zoloft. We tried Celexa, like three different kinds of antidepressants. And while those may work for some people, they wound me up and made me twitch and tick. And it was actually quite scary. They made me kind of manic. Like if I wasn't sleeping before, now I really wasn't sleeping. And I felt very wound up and, and accelerated. That was the point where my then husband said, we got to get you an appointment with a psychiatrist. So they did. She got a referral and went in. And. Within 15 minutes with this psychiatrist, I was diagnosed with anxiety, depression, and bipolar disorder. All those things sounded really scary. How could they not sound scary? Considering that she was given no real explanation, much less a proper exam. 15 minutes. That just blows my mind. From a checklist. Like, there were 10 questions. It was ridiculous. Ideally, being diagnosed with a mental health disorder is a process, a thoughtful and in-depth one that includes lots of conversations, discussion of your past, your family medical history, and more. But that was far from the case for Renee. I had chills, or more like quivers, as she spoke about that and while reading about it in her book, especially knowing where that experience would lead. So the doctor led her through that quick checklist. And he wrote me a prescription for Lamictal, which was for the bipolar. I was also given clonazepam or clonopin, which was a benzodiazepine. Renee figured he's a doctor, so he must know what he's doing. And regardless, by this point, she was feeling quite desperate. My son was born in 1999. At this point, it's like 2001, I want to say. So it was years of insomnia kind of wore me down. And when this guy said, 
I have a tried and true medication that's going to help you and it's just a baby dose and there's no risks associated with it. I really wanted to believe him. And at first you did have good sleep. I was so happy that you had that relief, even knowing where it was going. I remember the first night I took it. I took it and within 10 minutes I was asleep and the next day I woke up and it was like, it was like out of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Like, like I've heard the birds chirping and I didn't feel uptight and I just went, oh my gosh. I called it a miracle drug and I took it exactly as prescribed for seven years, for the next seven years. And no one told you that it was not supposed to be used for long term. Correct. Yeah. And in fact, at the time, so this is back in 2004 now, I guess where we are, because by the time I was ramped up to that, it was around 2004 where I was taking it daily. Yeah, no, I was told it's completely safe. It's a baby dose, non-addictive, and that it might actually even help me to lose a little weight. And in our culture, right? Like if you can take off a few pounds easily, like what woman's going to say no to that? You know, it wasn't a drug that was going to like add weight. It was going to be a drug that I might lose a couple pounds. You know, that's not a healthy way of thinking either, but like this was the allure and it worked for years and nobody questioned it. And to be fair, there was a recent change with the FDA labels, but in 2004, that knowledge was not there. So, you know, I just want to be clear, like all this information is now forthcoming at this point. But, you know, people were not concerned. And in fact, my own husband at the time, he was like, I see people on 10 times this amount. You know, you're fine. It's a baby dose. And for those seven years, Renee really thought she was fine. At first, it was great. I slept. I felt actually quite energetic. I was very productive because the truth be told, August, like you knew me back then when we were bloggers together, I was very productive because... I could stay up as late as I wanted and then take a medication. And within 15 minutes, I was out and I would get eight hours. But over time, I started to have a lot of other issues, which nobody attributed to the psychiatric meds at all. So I started to have very frequent urinary tract infections. I had yeast infections. I had a tightness in my throat that just like kind of like wouldn't go away. I had muscle spasms. One night I went dancing and like, I actually thought someone roofied my drink because from out of nowhere, I was just like, whoa, I'm super dizzy. And what it was, was that I was a little bit late with my medication that night because I was out having fun and I didn't recognize it at all at the time. But that was the first sign that I was having that like little bit of like, tolerance that I'd hit that place that like I needed more, you know, I needed more. And that was what the doctors always did. They would just give me a little bit more. So my prescription went up from like 0.25 milligrams to 0.5 to 0.75 to one. And by the end of the seven years, I was up to 2.25 milligrams of clonopin. So it went up almost 400%. One day she went in to see her doctor to have her prescription refilled as usual. And he wasn't there. There was a note on the door. The note basically said, hey, the doctor has decided to uh, not practice anymore. Go and, you know, go and find a new practitioner from your own primary care person. So I went back to my primary care. I had no idea about this. And so I just said, you know, can you just write for me? It'll be so much easier. And he said, yeah, no, I can't write for you. This is a controlled substance. 
And I went like, what? You know, no one had ever said boo. And he said, I can't write this for you. He said, you're going to need an addiction specialist. That was the first time she had heard the word addiction in connection with the medication she'd been taking. Still, Renee wasn't terribly concerned about any of this. She figured she would just switch doctors and everything would be fine. Yeah, so I switched doctors and I'm actually going to name her. So I ended up with Dr. Patricia Halligan. This is like one of those like there but for the grace of God moments because she actually at the time she's here in Rochester, New York. Now she is sought all over the country, all over the world. But she was like 20 minutes away from me right here in my town. And she knew how to get people off of these medications. Now, I have to preface this with something. There doesn't seem to be any correlation between how long someone's been on these drugs and the experience they have coming off of them. It seems to be very individualized experience. Some people could be taking these for 19, 20 years. I don't know what their genetics are, but they seem to come off them without a problem. Some people take them for two weeks and they have problems for years. So it's sort of a Russian roulette kind of situation here. But what she did know was that if you take people off of these benzodiazepines too abruptly, you can have seizures. And her goal or a goal is to try to do it slow enough so that you don't further injure your brain and have seizures. So that's one of the things I like to be very clear about because sometimes when people hear, even maybe if they hear this episode, like I don't want people to feel like, oh God, well then I'm just going to get off of this. You have to take it very slowly because even at the end, even if you have some problems, like the way I had some very significant problems, the goal is to not make worse problems for yourself. Renee added that you should never, ever stop a benzodiazepine abruptly, ever, 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 ever. And if you do wish to stop, you need help. The same applies to many other substances and medications. And she tried to do that, to go about stopping safely. And at first, it went pretty well. So I met with my doctor and she said, well, like, let's set up a schedule. And so we set up a slow, it was a slow medically supervised taper. It was about 10 months. Basically, I would get a little scale and I was cutting my medication into little bits and pieces and, you know, holding the rest and just, I was just cutting it, you know, cutting it and cutting it into smaller and smaller pieces and weighing them and trying to get the correct amounts. Clonopin is stronger than Valium. And she was dealing with tiny little micrograms. And so there comes a certain point when a drug is that strong that you can't cut it small enough anymore. You know, you're talking about micrograms, you know. So I had to cross over from the clonopin to the Valium and then continue to taper down further. So eventually I got down as far as I could go with cutting the Valium. But that is where things got confused. She didn't realize it at the time, but she was supposed to continue with this thing called a water titration. It's where a pill is mixed with water so you can more precisely measure those increasingly small doses. And I was supposed to go to like a compounding pharmacy and have new tablets or capsules made up where I would have continued all the way down until I got down to 0.00 and like that would have been the day. But I didn't know that information. So I ended up jumping off at what I believe was about 
it was like point one two five milligrams of Valium, which doesn't sound like very much. But remember, I had been taking this stuff for seven years, and it probably needed another six months of tapering. My doctor went out of town. I couldn't get a hold of her. There were no further instructions on my little yellow pad of paper. And so I went, I guess I'm done. Like, I think I'm done. So that was it. She stopped taking the medication. She and Derek decided to commemorate it with a nice dinner out. She even bought a new dress. You know, we were celebrating because I got off of it. And everything was kind of okay for a few days. But clonopin has a half-life that is longer than other drugs, some 30 to 40 hours, according to the FDA. And so about 10 days after my last dose, I felt this very strange experience. I started to experience like a kaleidoscope effect with my vision. Derek, who's an ophthalmologist, told her it was an ocular migraine. And I was kind of like, I don't know. And that went on for a few days. Things just didn't seem right. I, I didn't feel well. It's a very hard thing to explain, but like, I felt like the world tilted. Things were not right. She had headaches, fatigue. Everything felt too bright. And things were getting worse. One morning, I walked down the stairs and I just looked outside and I said, something is not right. And I heard these three clicks in my brain. I'll never forget it. It's that sound of a thermostat. Like if your thermostat clicks on, that click, click, click sound. A moment later, she was down on the ground. And I was having a seizure. I had pulled myself off of the medication too quickly. I stayed there on the floor all day. And when my husband came home at the end of the day, he saw me on the floor and he escorted me upstairs. And I stayed there for several weeks in bed. I was just really debilitated. Couldn't walk, couldn't talk, blinds down. Um, it was bad. Renee had no way of reaching her doctor, who was still out of the country. Derek didn't know what to do. She thinks in his own way he was trying to protect her by letting her rest at home. Meanwhile, she was barely eating. She lost weight. She wasn't sleeping. She couldn't even bathe. She said it was similar to back when she first started hearing voices, but times 1,000. One of the most excruciating parts was muscle spasms. If you imagine being electrocuted and you're holding onto like a, a wire that's electrocuting you and you can't let go of it, it's just continuous zaps, brain zaps. And imagine that somebody's also hitting you in the head with a hammer at the same time while your muscles are cramping up, you know, your feet are cramping up, while your ears are ringing, while your eyes are tearing because your vision is messed up, even the sheets hurt your skin. It's just, it's like being in an invisible torture chamber that you just can't escape. It's unfathomable. But you write about it in such a vivid way and speak about it in such a vivid way that we can start to imagine. And I think that's really important. And it's so sad to me that when we are in the most dire of straits, we have the hardest time getting help because our, our brain isn't working. 
it's just such a horrible catch-22 that when we are in the deepest of trauma yeah. and we need the most help, we are on the ground and dying. Yeah. And what is that? That's like some primitive thing, right? That it's like protecting you. So it makes you want to like hibernate and not ask. Like I was too scared to ask people. I just needed like blood to get to my brain and my heart or something. And anything else seemed like a threat. I, it was it was very strange. It was a very, very strange thing. I, I didn't want anyone to come and see me. Yes, that is a trauma response, profound trauma response. Were you thinking on some level that it's just going to wear off? Yes, absolutely. Because I was not an innocent girl. I mean, I may have been brought up like a little good Jewish girl, but like I had experimented with some drugs in college. Like I had tried psilocybin mushrooms and some other things and like they had to come down off of them. You know, it was the like, oh, like I'm tired the next day or something. And I had that trippy feeling. And this is what it feels like. It feels like for those of you who have had bad trips, you're stuck in a bad trip. And and so I just kept thinking, well, it's got to end. It's got to end like every other bad trip ends. You know, the experience ends like how long can it last? I mean, the good thing is it did eventually end, but the horror is years. I'm eight years off now. Eight years of that where it was like being in a bad trip while you're in a torture chamber, while you're being electric. Like it's just really difficult. You did end up meeting a woman who was very helpful to you. And she's almost like this fairy angel or something who comes into your life. Yeah. She's my, like, my Glinda. You know, it's like, those are the things, like, look for the helpers, right? Like, this is truly evidence that it was not my day to die. I had gone to go get a massage, and it was awful. I couldn't have anyone touch me. I was too sensitive, and I left the massage place after 15 minutes of trying to, you know, I couldn't take it, and I went outside, and I basically decided that I was going to kill myself. Like, this is it. This is, I'm going to jump off this building. And I was crying and I was like a little sad for my son, but also like you said, our brains aren't working. So I was kind of thinking to myself, what good am I to anybody? I'm no good to anybody at all like this. I can't do anything. I can't work. I can't talk. I can't make it to the bathroom. I'm such a burden. Like everyone will be better off. And I, I truly believed it. And I was also in so much physical pain, physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. I was so disconnected from myself. So I was going to jump and I was crying and this this woman approached me and she just, she crouched down and she said, hi, are you okay? I just said, nope, no, I am not okay. I am actually in withdrawal after coming off of a very powerful anti-anxiety medication and I I can't do this. Like I can't do it and I'm going to jump off of that building right there. And she kind of looked at me and she cocked her head and she said, hmm, you want to come home with me? And I didn't know her. I didn't even know her name. I didn't know her last name. I didn't know where she lived. But what does it matter? Because I was going to jump, right? So if she was going to kill me, awesome. Like make it snappy, sister. So Renee followed the woman like a stray puppy dog, stepped into her car, and they started driving. Then she learned the woman's name. We were in the car talking and she's like, I guess if you're coming home with me, you know, I should probably know your name. And I said, my name's Renee. And she was like, like pulls over the car. And she's like, are you kidding me? And I said, no, why? And she said, my name's Renee too. Wow. It felt like a really neat experience for both of us. Very divine. And like, it felt like divine intervention. And that was only the beginning Renee lived with the woman off and on for about six months. 
Meanwhile, the woman taught her about nutrition, meditation, the importance of good sleep hygiene. She just blew open my world to a whole other kind of knowing because I came from a medical, you know, this family that I had married into was a medical model. And she was all about something else, which was very self-empowered and holistic and about treating the whole person rather than symptoms. Little did Renee know that the woman had been wanting to open a healing center for years. So she had been bringing people home to their house for years. Like I wasn't the first stray that, you know, they brought home. And her kids had that response to me. They're like, you're not the first one. Don't worry about it. And, you know, I would be lying around on the floor writhing in pain and they'd step over me, you know, go and make a peanut butter sandwich or something. And so, but they were all wonderful. Over time, the woman continued to provide Renee with all sorts of free holistic therapies. She got me body work. She got me therapeutic massage. I went and had acupuncture, like all kinds of things that I had never heard of or had any access to. These things started to break it up for me. It was like my world was blown open to all different kinds of non-ingestible. It wasn't any supplements. It was like outside the body kinds of things. And I started to feel better. I started to feel better. Do you remember that moment or one of the moments when you really felt like, oh, the leaf has turned? Yeah, I actually do. It was during an hour of cranial sacral massage, a therapy that uses light touch focused on the head and spinal column to move fluids around your nervous system and relieve tension. It's also believed to help move trauma that's stuck in your body. I had this session and I sat up and I looked around and I was like, oh my God, I feel okay. I feel okay. I was kind of scared to even say it because I was like, felt kind of okay. And I remember I went to the grocery store. I remember I actually ran into a friend at the grocery store. We had a conversation. Like it wasn't normal. It was weird, but I was better than I had been for years at that point. It was a big moment for her because she thought, If she could experience that for one hour, she could experience it for two. People in the recovery community talk about windows and waves. You talk about that, like, it's not a linear healing, this thing. And so not like when you, like, cut your hand and you just notice that scabs and it's eventually it falls off. And it's not like that. You have, like, some days that are better and then days are worse. That was not my experience. I was just awful the whole way until this one day where I had this one good hour It was like heaven sent because I really needed that hour to feel like, okay, for whatever reason, that happened. And so I know that it could happen again. Wow. It sounds like you had hope. You know what? That is it. I had hope. I had hope restored. And I guess on some level, I always had hope because otherwise I would have jumped. All of that work ended up healing trauma that Renee had been carrying around for years, beyond her dependence on benzos. She was able to make some peace with those experiences, she said, and really settle her nervous system so that her body 
could know that she's safe. That those painful things aren't happening now. As she was healing and spending a lot of time in bed, she also started painting beautiful creations. Given her brain injury, she was having a hard time reading. She said that painting filled that space. When she posted photos of her paintings online, just sharing, here's what I did today, people started offering to buy them. Renee was floored by this, and it led to some of the advocacy she continues to do today. I had been a teacher for 20 years. I wasn't painting. You know, this was crazy. And so over time, I started to ask other people, is anyone else going through anything similar? Like thinking I'd find other people with benzo issues. And I was so amazed that people sent me pictures of themselves and asked me if I would paint like an abstract portrait of them and they'd share their story with me. And it just became part of my artistic practice. And it was a way to connect with people when I really couldn't connect with people in person yet. And it really was quite healing. And what I realized then is we might feel like we're alone, but wow, we are never alone. Anything that anyone is going through, you are not alone. And like most healing work, it's all impacted Renee's sexual self too. I feel like I've had so much healing in that area too. I have met some people who have helped me in that area to show me that they appreciated my passion and my libido, and they didn't think that it was crazy or bad or too much. So that part was very helpful and healing. That being said, I haven't quite been able to put it all together or find the right person yet to be in relationship with, but that's okay because I actually believe that it will come when it's the right time and that it hadn't been the right time. But I definitely feel like the next relationship that I get into, I will be able to remain true to myself without losing myself in relationship the way that I did, without making myself small the way that I did. I'm so firm in my nose now that I know when I can say yes and when I can say no. I just feel like that's a really big part of this journey for women especially for everybody, but women especially, we are not socialized to say, no, we're not socialized to say, I can't do this, I'm sorry, or I'm going to need extra time to do it, whatever we need to say. And I'm so in that power now, it's never going away. So I do feel like the most healthy relationship is headed my way. As for her relationship with herself, Renee has recently started using the word healed past tense. She told me she is completely clear now on her purpose. So I'm an artist. I am here to write. I'm here to teach. I was always a teacher. I'm teaching in a different way now. I am here to make the world beautiful. I am here to help people discover this side of themselves that everyone can be a maker and a creator. I'm here to teach people that they don't have to be perfect the other thing that I do is I actually offer emotional support to people who are going through this injury with the legal prescriptions, psychiatric medications, people who are trying to come off of their medications. Not everybody is in that place, but for people who are, I offer emotional support to them. And it's a beautiful thing. And I'm so much, I'm so glad to be on this side of it. And I obviously know that like there are other challenges that are going to come into my life, you know. 
but I feel so much more capable having gone through this experience. I feel, I'm going to just say it. I think I'm allowed to swear on here. I feel unfuckwithable. I really do. I feel like I have the skills to make it through the rest of my life, to ask for what I need when I need it, and to not stop searching even if the first person says no. And I'm going to find it because there are people who are going to be able to help me no matter what challenge I have. I didn't have that before. I was always looking for somebody to fix the broken me. And once I realize that I'm here this time to express myself fully, be my most, we all are, we all are, by the way, it's not just me. We're all here for that. But doesn't it sound easy when you say it? We're all here to be like, I would have said to you when I was on the drugs, I would have said to you that I'm being my most authentic self. That's the creepiest part. I really thought that I was, but off of it now, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a force. There is, of course, so much more to Renee Schulz Jacobson's story. For a powerful deep dive, find her book, Psychiatrized, Waking Up After a Decade of Bad Medicine, on Amazon. It's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook forms. You can also hear a few more snippets from our interview, including about a spiritual experience she found especially healing and her tips for starting to live more authentically on Patreon at patreon.com girlboner. If you would like to reach out to Renee or explore her artwork, you can do so through her website. I just got a little song, which I always say, I'm always making something. I'm an artist to the core. Raz Jacobson dot store. <laughs> That's R-A-S Jacobson dot store. If you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I would love to hear from you by way of a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the iTunes Store. And if you check out Zencaster for podcasting, I want to hear about it. Learn more or sign up at the discount link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>